Welcome to Addiction and the Family, Episode 5, Addiction and the Brain. How has addiction affected your family? It robbed me of my father. Addiction's affected my family in absolutely every way. Um, it has caused a lot of turmoil. It goes back to what I understand is at least three generations. It robbed my daughter of her mother. It robbed my mother of her daughter. Addiction has made our family quite challenging. Addiction affected my family tremendously. Uh, it's affected my relationship with my sister where I wouldn't I'd go for months without talking to her. It's a very difficult thing for everybody involved. It doesn't just affect the, the one individual. It's a disease that affects the whole family. Addiction has spread not only genetically through like some of my uh, relatives and I assume ancestors. It's uh, generational. I think of him every day. Welcome to Addiction in the Family. My name is Casey Arriaga. I'm a licensed master social worker and addiction counselor at both Winmo Wellness Ranch and In My Doubt Emotional Wellness Centers in Texas, and I've been facilitating family workshops since 2009. But just as importantly, I'm a family member, like many of you. Addiction shows up throughout my family tree. I was raised with addiction, I embraced it for decades of my own life, I'm married to someone with addiction, and I've been in recovery since 1998. It's from all of these perspectives that I want to offer you experience, strength, and realistic hope. Join me as we explore addiction in the family and how to find recovery together. Today's episode is a bit of a departure from our usual format. Instead of an interview, we have Casey's Addiction and the Brain lecture for you. Now, some of you might be thinking, no, lectures are boring, and frankly, I agree. But this is Casey giving the lecture. It contains chocolate cake and not one, but two distinct genres of movies, along with some really great information about why some people choose to become addicts. Uh, Kira? What? Um, nobody chooses to be an addict. We're actually going to hear about that as we go along. I guess I should just listen to the lecture again. But first, a word from one of our sponsors. Addiction in the Family is brought to you in part by the generous support of Windmill Wellness Ranch, an innovative treatment center located in the beautiful hill country of Texas and serving clients and their families from throughout the United States. I'm Shannon Mollish, CEO of Windmill Wellness Ranch. We offer the best in neurotechnology to heal the brain and the best therapy to heal the mind. Call us today at 210-762-6217. Welcome back. For those of you who've recently listened to episode two, Addiction 101, you may remember that we included an excerpt from this lecture. That bit starts at about six and a half minutes on this podcast and ends at about 18 and a half minutes. So feel free to skip ahead or just sit back and listen again. So what we're going to be talking about today is, of course, addiction to the brain. One of my favorite all-time subjects ever about anything. We're going to talk about some of the basic questions that families often have around this, and a lot of people have around this, which has to do with things like, is addiction really a disease? And if so, why would we say that? Um, because we know that's the official party line, right? You feel like the family disease of alcoholism, if you go to Al-Anon or we'll go to AA, and they'll talk about it being a disease, things like that. But we want to look and say if the science supports that, because I'm a big science guy. And, but also looking at what's actually going on in the brain, what actually happens around drugs. Not so much like, hey, this drug does this thing. I don't spend a lot of time telling my clients about that stuff, because they come in telling me better than I do. Like, here's what this thing does to my brain, but looking at more on a global scale, and also looking how this applies for families. Now, the main reason that I love to talk about this stuff, though, is not just because it's interesting knowledge, and frankly, you could recover without knowing any of this, when it really comes down to it. None of this is vital for recovery. Um, in the same way I can play piano without knowing how my piano works, and I totally use my computer without knowing how my computer works. But there's so much stigma around addiction. And because of that stigma, I find that when we learn the facts about it, and that's one of those things that they'll say in Alan, is learn the facts about alcoholism, right? Um, when I learn the facts about it, it takes away some of the guilt and the shame and the blame. And I always say, blame and shame got people sober, everybody would have gone sober already. Because I've never met anybody in recovery who didn't spend a bunch of time blaming themselves, feeling ashamed. Family members, we all know a lot of blame can get thrown around within the family. A lot of blame and shame can come from outside the family. Um, some of it we generate within ourselves, you know, how could my family member go through this? How did I not catch it? 
all these kinds of questions that can come up. What I find is when we understand more about the facts and the science, then we have less reason to go down those rabbit holes and look instead and say, well, if it's a disease and nobody chose to have it, and that's important to know. I say this a lot. People may choose to use drugs or engage in behaviors, but I talk to groups of, you know, through this, some version of this with a bunch of police officers, with people that work in sober houses, with social workers, you know, 50 social workers in a room. I'll say, okay, who here has never used drugs? And like, a bunch of hands will go up, say, keeping in mind that alcohol is a drug, and all the hands go back down. So everybody in the room chose to use drugs at some point. How many people here became addicts? And usually not a whole lot of the hands will go up in the room anymore. So the choice to use a drug does not equal the choice to become an addict. And that's really important. And that's where we have to start to differentiate and say, well then how come some people got lucky and some people didn't get so lucky? So we're gonna look at those three major questions, which is, is it really a disease? And if so, why would we say that? Because I find that as we understand the disease aspect, then there goes one piece of guilt and shame. What's actually going on in the brain is the second big question. Because when we understand that, we can put down some of the guilt and shame. And then we look at some of the factors that put people at risk. And that gives us another chance to put down some guilt and shame. And that to me makes it worth going through all this information. So if your eyes start to glaze over, Hey, bear with me. This is why we're talking about it. So first and foremost, um, the whole disease thing. Thinking about is it really a disease and if so, why would we say that? So to understand that, we need to understand on just a basic level what makes anything a disease or maybe to simplify that to make it easier to wrap our heads around say what makes anything a medical condition. What I mean by that is what makes something where I'd say I need to go see a medical practitioner about this versus uh, say, I need to go get a moral lecture about this, or I need to see a religious practitioner about this, or I need to see if it'll go away on its own, right? Those are the magic words of American medicine, maybe it'll go away on its own. How many people who struggle with addiction in the room at some point thought maybe this will just go away on its own? <laughs> yeah, all the hands go up, right? <laughs> that idea of like, yeah, maybe if I just hang in there, I won't have this problem anymore. Maybe tomorrow I'll be able to control it. Well, as we start to look and say, what makes anything a medical condition, we gotta try and figure out what we're looking for. So it turns out there's three major factors that go into that. One, very simple, it has to be part of the body. Now that might seem like a no-brainer, but it's actually really, really important. So what that means is there needs to be some organ or system of organs that seems to be where the problem is happening. The second thing is there has to be some kind of observable damage and last but not least, from that, we see some kind of symptoms. Now usually we go backwards with this, right? We start with the symptoms, and from that we try and figure out what is happening in what place. Did anyone here ever play the game Clue? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that kind of idea, right? We think this happened in this place, so we see these things happening. Now if we just pick something, I'm just gonna pick a condition here, and I will say I am getting thirsty a lot, based on that, would we be able to tell what the problem is? No, we don't have enough information yet. Uh, let's say there's frequent urination. Would we say we know what the problem is yet? No, not yet. Right. Uh, I might say that at some point I have neuropathy, which that's really bad. You don't want that to happen. Based on this so far, do we know what it is? What are you thinking? Diabetes. Diabetes, yeah. We could say, we could look at all these things and say, we might be dealing with, with diabetes. Probably the neuropathy that pushes it over. Of course, if you go into a diabetic coma, that's a big giveaway right there. So then, based on that, we would say, I'm a really oversimplified here. Things are out of balance. Do we know where? We do actually, it's the pancreas. Now I only know that because I've given this lecture a bunch of times and sometimes they're like doctors sitting in the audience and say, hey, by the way, it's the pancreas, buddy. I'm like, cool, thank you so much. <laughs> Next time the lecture will be even better. So 
if we know that we have this problem in the pancreas, can we just go in and fix the pancreas? No, we can't. That becomes part of the problem, is that we know where the problem is, but we can't just go in and fix it right away. But there are things we can do, right? We're not just stuck with this. Yay, modern medicine, because for a long time, diabetes was a pretty quick death sentence. Now we just take for granted, like, oh, it's this thing where you have to manage it. So we can manage it through medications, medical practice, but also through a lot of behavior change. It's a big way to, to help manage it. Isn't just, I gotta go see the doctor from time to time, but I'm actually gonna change some things in my daily life. So I might change my diet, I might exercise a little bit more, those are good things, right? Depending on the severity, I might have to check my blood sugar, take insulin, all those sorts of things. But if I do all that, can I live a good life? Yeah, if I do all the things you suggested, I can live a really great life, feel good with it, all is good. What happens though if I do that for a couple of years, doing all the things you suggested, and then one day I get up and I go like, you know what, I miss chocolate cake. I'm tired of sticking my finger and measuring the blood sugar. I don't feel like seeing the doctor anymore. What happens to me? Yeah, I, well at the very least, all the symptoms, I hear you say, hey, you die, which can happen, definitely but all the symptoms start to come back. And I might pick up kind of where I left off and start going down from there because it can get pretty bad. You know, we mentioned coma, you can get blindness, you know, uh, eventually death, of course. It'll kill you, you're absolutely right. Does this analogy look familiar to anybody? Yeah. What do you think the relapse rate is for diabetes, if you had to guess? 80%? Okay. It's a little high, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's about 60 to 40 percent, depending on you talk to. And that turns out to be a common relapse rate for a lot of chronic conditions. And part of the reason for that, I'm going to guess, is because to deal with a lot of chronic conditions, you have to change your behavior. And probably no surprise to anyone in the room, human behavior is hard to change. It's really hard to make changes and stick with them. It's tempting to go back to what we know. <clears throat> it's one of the reasons that we advocate for so much repetition around recovery. Going to meetings all the time, going through the steps again, calling my sponsor again, all those kinds of things. For most people, especially in early recovery, that just feels like, oh man, I gotta do all this stuff. My experience is over time, that starts to shift into I get to do all this stuff. Like, I feel really blessed, I have a sponsor to call. You know, I have meetings I can go to, stuff like that. But initially it can be kind of onerous. Oh, I gotta do all these things. But that sense of repetition turns the old behavior into a less common thing, the new behavior into my new normal. And that's kind of getting off into a different subject, but that's kind of where we wanted to end up is where addiction was our habit, was our normal. We want recovery to turn to our habit and our normal. And that's why we tell people it's not enough to say, hey, I'm gonna go to a meeting or call my sponsor or review the, you know, all the writing I did, you know, all this kind of, whatever it is that I'm doing to help me recover. It's not enough to say, I'm gonna go do that when I'm feeling <coughs> down. I'm gonna go do that when things seem shaky. I'm gonna go do that if I feel like a drink. I'm always gonna say, man, it's too late. You messed the bus already. You gotta be doing that stuff when things are good so you have that momentum so it's already just a normal part of your life. There was actually a really cool study done and they're starting, as I understand, to have more and more backup for this, finding that you can really um, dramatically improve somebody's odds around uh, really nasty chronic disease, Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's, again, known in our day and age as pretty much a death sentence, and it's a really bad one. Um, you lose your personality, it's terrible for you and all the people around you, a lot of confusion, a lot of anger. It's pretty heavy stuff. Well, there was a breakthrough study at UCLA, I'm going to say within the last five years or so. And in that study, someone showed in 9 out of 10 participants that not only stopped, but actually started to reverse the effects of Alzheimer's, something we weren't sure could be done. There was some medication, but a lot of it was diet, exercise, super healthy living, I mean, brushing your gums. I mean, everything anyone's ever told you to do is like a good health thing. The people and the participants in the study, the people that were doing it, were required to do that thing. And check it out. They were walking out of a death sentence 
their brains were getting better, they were regaining their memory. And you know what they did? They complained. They complained that they had to change their diet and get all You mean I have to keep doing this forever? And one of the doctors said, you know, most of these trials, we give somebody a medication, they're like gaining weight, they're feeling sluggish. These people are in the best shape of their lives, they're feeling super energetic, and most of what they can think of is like, when do I get to go back to my old behavior? <laughs> right? Because that's a normal human thought. And I think that's what gets in the way of a lot of recovery around a lot of chronic conditions. But addiction particularly stands out for that, partly because of the symptoms that we see. Right, because when somebody has diabetes, we don't judge them for the symptoms. We might say, hey, you should have been more careful and known it ran in your family and uh, eaten more carefully and things like that, which by the way is a touch misguided because there's a lot about getting diabetes that nobody has any control over. But on some level, we even kind of recognize that, right? We're like, oh man, poor thing, you got diabetes. I know you didn't choose to have diabetes. But when we look at the symptoms of addiction, the kind of things that get people to show up to treatment. That's a little bit different. Because the kind of symptoms that get people to decide to come to treatment, um, and usually when I ask this, people will say like, oh, like a uh, higher tolerance. I'm like, man, people do not show up to treatment because they have a higher tolerance. They say, well, health conditions, you, those, those definitely happen as symptoms, but that's not why people show up to treatment either. People show up to treatment because their life is either falling apart or it's about to fall apart. So you'll run into problems uh, in areas like family, problems with kids, like CPS might be getting involved, uh, problems with honesty, work problems, absolutely, which lead to money problems. We have these big problems, right? These are the kind of things that get people to say, maybe I need to do something about this. And sometimes it goes to the deeper stuff, because sometimes people do decide, you know, I'm gonna get sober without any treatment or without having to go through everything falling apart. But what they're losing instead, they're not having so much external problems, they're having internal problems. They're having problems with um, emotional regulation. They're having problems with self-esteem. They haven't lost their job, but they feel like they've lost their values. They feel like they've lost their internal sense of control. Now, people often at a treatment center show up because they're having these big external problems. We know they're having these internal problems too. Some people just show up at, at like an AA meeting or a smart recovery meeting or a celebrate recovery meeting. Maybe they don't get to the point of going to treatment, but they've still had all this emotional stuff, self-esteem, values, loss of self-control, things like that. And the thing is, when I look at these symptoms, people put a lot of judgment on these. A lot of self-judgment, a lot of external judgment, and unlike diabetes or any other chronic condition, both the person with the addiction and the people around them will tend to say, that's your fault. That's on you, buddy. You're the one who's making those decisions. And our experience is, that's true, right? We are one of the ones making these decisions. I mean, I'm in recovery. I remember making a decision to act out every time that I did. What I didn't know, and I'll be able to show you guys, is that we actually know scientifically why that happens. And it turns out that it's not a lack of moral character. It turns out it has nothing to do with willpower. That's a really interesting fact. Um, a lot of people mistake addiction for lack of willpower, including the person with the addiction. will think, like, well, I just don't have enough willpower. First of all, I'm going to say it takes a lot of willpower to sustain addiction. It's been said that people with addiction are some of the hardest working people in America. They're just getting the worst returns. <laughs> but. It turns out that the people who have an addiction aren't struggling with willpower because the people who don't have an addiction often aren't fighting some titanic internal battle where they're desperate to drink. They're not fighting back against this huge urge with their willpower. The people who don't have an addiction aren't, weren't that tempted in the first place. They're the people, as I was just hearing a, a great interview with somebody, a brain researcher around this, around how habits are formed and how we make choices. And she said, you know, you open up the fridge and there's chocolate cake in there and you're going, oh my God, I want those cake. I need to have a piece of that cake, all that kind of stuff. Then you're one of the people that really struggles with it. And you might use some willpower not to have the cake right then, but it could be hard in the long term. The people who don't have a struggle, 
They're not using willpower. They open it up and they're like, oh yeah, I don't eat that. What else we got? Right? So the people such as myself in recovery are the people that think like, oh man, I really want to do this. And then it just gets lodged in the brain. And my brain just starts thinking, what do I need to do to do that? No, no, I'm not going to do it. Oh, but maybe I could just this one time. It'll be okay. It won't be that bad. And I'm going through this big internal dialogue. And the most likely thing left to myself is that I'm going to give in. And we're going to find out why. Because kind of like our example with diabetes, I'm going to say things go out of balance. Again, oversimplification, but we're going to get a lot more specific on that. And no big surprise in the brain, right? That is where the problem happens. And do we know which part of the brain? It's going to be in the limbic system, um, which involves, well, the limbic system is a little tricky. I'm going to say it involves the amygdala. Some researchers put different parts into the box that they call the limbic system because it's not super clearly defined. But you'll often find a few select parts in there. We're going to put some of those up here. So it's a cross section. We're looking at it from the side. And if we look at it from the side, all the outside stuff, kind of the walnut looking gray matter, right? That's what we think of. We think of gray matter with our brain. All that's contained on this outer layer. And when we look at the cross-section, it looks pretty thick, right? It's a pretty good chunk of the brain. But the gray matter itself, the parts that we're doing conscious thought with, among other things, um, is actually a thin layer over the top. It's just like a coating. It's almost like it was painted over the top, which we think is part of the reason that it's so knobbly and wrinkly is because that actually gives us more surface area to get a little more gray matter in there. But this part over here is where all of our consciousness sits but our consciousness doesn't even sit through all this part, which by the way is called the cortex from the Latin for bark. Roughly the front half of the cortex is where the consciousness sits. And back here we get more into like sensory information and right here in the middle, kind of the, called the motor strip, we have like motor information and motor commands, stuff like that. So the way it's supposed to work roughly is we think we get sensory information, we think up some actions, make plans. And then this front we call the executive function up here. And this part is where we think we make decisions. But it turns out we're wrong. We like to think our consciousness logically makes most decisions, but you know which part of our brain tells us that? This part, the consciousness. Our consciousness tells us our consciousness is making decisions. Um, it thinks it's running the show, but it's not. It turns out we make an awful lot of our decisions much lower in the brain down here and the amygdala right there. We'll put that little dot there. I'm going to draw this little squiggle here that'll represent the hippocampus. And then up here, I'm going to draw one other part, which often is not included in the limbic system, but it's very vital for our purposes. So we're going to kind of lump it all together. Three major parts we look at, the nucleus accumbens, very important for us. So let's look at each one of these. The amygdala is a big emotional center for us. And one of the things that's known for among emotional regulation is it helps regulate fear. And that's a pretty big deal. Because I'll tell you that when I see people relapse, you know, they'll often tell me a really familiar story, right? And I talk about this all the time. If you ever go to AA meetings, you'll hear this a lot. You know, wow, how did you relapse? And someone will say, well, I stopped calling my sponsor and I stopped going to meetings. I stopped reading the book. You know, I stopped doing all the tools that AA was giving me. And as a counselor and a social worker, I sit and think like, okay, I hear you, that's true, but what was going on that you would stop doing all those things that were working for you? Now, I know partly the addiction kind of wants to get a foot in the door, right? That part of me that wants to go back to that old habit we talked a minute ago. But usually what I find is this right here, fear. That's what starts to push it. Something came up. Um, if, you've, if, you're, if you're trying out 12-step recovery, I've got to warn you, there are two sort of danger zones. There are some of the most powerful parts of the step process, in my opinion, and they're also the ones where I see people struggle the most and have a higher potential for relapse. And that's steps four and five and steps eight and nine. Now, for those that aren't familiar with the process, four and five says we made it a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five says admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. And a lot of people look at that, and remember that shame and guilt and all that stuff we were talking about. People look at that and think, oh, this is gonna be horrible. I need to write down what a horrible person I am, and then I need to go and take that and tell somebody else. That sounds like a really bad idea. And the amygdala starts to light up. 
And so now every time I think about moving forward in my step work, I get scared. Well, if I'm not able to acknowledge and deal with that fear, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna come up with reasons not to do step four. And we see a lot of people get stuck on step four. They either don't start it, or they get partway through it, and then they stop. And it's because of this fear right here. And the amygdala helps regulate that fear. See, when the amygdala lights up, kind of mildly, we might feel a little uneasy, but we still have this executive function, right? So the amygdala is saying, hey boss, there might be something to be scared about. And our frontal lobe looks at that and says like, well, you know, amygdala, I thought that over. Don't worry, it's gonna be fine. That's when it's going off mildly, when it's somewhat activated. But the more activated it gets, the easier it is for this part of the brain to take over. And we'll actually see that the frontal lobe here actually starts to lose function, which I think it's supposed to do. Because if we run into a circumstance that's scary enough, we're not supposed to sit down and think about it. We're supposed to run or fight or freeze or do something to survive that moment. And then we'll hand control back over and the frontal lobe will take over again and say, okay, now I can stop and process what happened. But if the fear gets great enough, it will take over the brain which means we'll start making decisions that we think are conscious decisions, but they're actually highly emotional decisions. And if we're living in a state of fear on our recovery, this is always somewhat activated, then any little thing comes in and pings, and it becomes too much. And for somebody with an addiction, if we feel emotionally overwhelmed, we're gonna go use. I know that of myself. If I feel overwhelmed, I'm gonna go use. So some of the clients have heard me say this a number of times, part of my job as a person in recovery is to make sure I never get that overwhelmed again. Which I would love to say would happen because I control the whole world and nobody ever does anything overwhelming. But life kind of keeps coming at you when you're in sobriety. So what I found instead is I need to learn how to regulate this part so that I don't feel overwhelmed, not because life is being like really gentle with me, but because I now have some better tools. Because this part here, all this stuff down here doesn't feel very well with time. See like the frontal lobe up here, this part of the brain can deal with infinite time. What I mean by that is it can imagine infinitely into the future, infinitely into the past. I can wonder what happens at the end of the universe, but what happens after that? What happened before the universe began? What happened before that? I can imagine way outside of my own lifespan. Down here in the limbic system, last estimate I heard was 45 seconds. That's how far I can get. Which means any consequence is even a minute in the future. Love system doesn't care. That's way too far off. That's abstract, man. I can't think about that stuff. So if I'm scared, I'm not going to consider any consequence that's a full minute into the future. I'm just going to do what I need to do right now to get by. Then I'll hand control back over to the um, frontal lobe, and then we'll sit down and think about, gosh, was that good or bad? Now I wonder, among our clients, how many people have had the experience where you went and acted out in your addiction in whatever form, and then immediately regretted it? Has anyone ever done that? Yeah, all the hands go up. We've all done it. Right up to that moment, it seemed like an okay idea. Around about you, I've had the experience where I could feel myself making a decision to shut down the frontal lobe and not think about the consequences. And it leads to something that I call the horror movie experience. You know, you're watching a horror movie and like the, the protagonist is going up the stairs and you're shouting at the screen like, don't go up the stairs. What are you thinking about? You don't, don't, open the, don't open that door. Don't go in there by yourself. What are you thinking about? Right? And they're doing it anyway. Well, the horror movie experience for me is when I'm, that's me, within me. I'm watching myself do something and thinking, Casey, what are you doing? Stop. Don't, 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 don't do this. And then I did it anyway, and then control came back to my front lobe, and I went like, oh, wow, what's going to happen now? Because now I regain my ability to think about consequences. If this sounds a little scary, it should. <laughs> because it is kind of scary. And if you haven't had that experience, then I'm really happy for you. And a lot of family members, when they say, like, well, I can't relate to this at all, I say, feel blessed that you can't relate, because this is a really scary experience. But we've got two other parts we put up here, right? We put up the nucleus accumbens we talked about and the hippocampus. So the amygdala is where we feel fear. The nucleus accumbens over here is where we feel pleasure. So now we like that part of the brain, right? This is what makes us feel good. So we have what feels, makes us feel bad and scared, what makes us feel good, 
And then we have a hip camera. So this does fear and this does pleasure. The hippocampus, you can probably tell from the name, that's where hippos go to school. Okay, it's a terrible bad joke, sorry about that. That's what happens. So the hippocampus, among other things, is involved in memory formation. And that is a big deal when it comes to addiction. So we have fear, which tells us to avoid threats. Pleasure, though, what is the point of feeling pleasure? Try to leave fear? That's often what it feels like in addiction. That's what gets a lot of people using. We are trying to relieve fear that we already felt. The pleasure actually is our motivator to move towards things. If fear tells me to move away from something, pleasure tells me to move towards it. So my brain tends to feel pleasure around anything that it thinks of as being survival. Now, between the two, fear will outweigh pleasure. And that's kind of a bummer, because when I watch like a movie about addiction, um, what I often see is that our hero who struggles titanically with addiction is saved by the love of a good man or woman. How many people have seen that movie? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of them out there, right? Where the love of a parent, the love of a, of a partner, the love of whoever, the love of a puppy, whatever it is that gets them through that week, it's not a great moral to a story because that's not what actually happens because fear will win out over pleasure. And love is a form of pleasure. Love tells us we need other people to survive, which as human beings is kind of true. We do need other people to survive. We are a tribal animal. But fear will win. And the basic theory behind that is simply that fear tells me deal with or avoid a threat. Pleasure says go get a reward. Well, if I miss a reward, it's a bummer, but I'll be around tomorrow to try and get more rewards. If I miss a threat, then I'm dead. I don't have to worry about what's for lunch tomorrow because I'm somebody else's lunch today. <laughs> I'm all out of pleasure at that point. So that means that my brain is going to put a lot more emphasis on fear than it is on pleasure. When the fear feels like it's tolerable, then I say, okay, what's going to feel good? But sometimes, especially around addiction, what we mistake for pleasure is actually simply the relief of fear. It's just, let me turn the fear off and I go, ah, oh, it feels so good. That I miss, that I'm not actually feeling a whole lot of pleasure. Because let me tell you, a lot of you know this already from personal experience, but by the time somebody gets to dragging themselves into AA or showing up at a treatment center and all this kind of stuff, like the party was over a long time ago. Yeah. Like we're not, we're not showing up because we're having too much fun. <laughs> we're showing up because we're not feeling much pleasure around anything. We're mostly running on fear. We'll be right back with more of Casey's lecture after this word from one of our sponsors. Addiction and the Family is made possible in part by you, our listeners, through the power of Patreon. If you want to help support this podcast, simply drop by our support page at patreon.com slash addictionandthefamily, or alternatively, go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and search for Addiction and the Family. Any level of support helps us carry the message, and official patrons get sneak peek excerpts from my book in progress, Realistic Hope, The Family Survival Guide for Facing Alcoholism and Other Addictions. Visit our page on Patreon for details. Welcome back, and now the conclusion of Casey's lecture on addiction and the brain. So this is the overview of the brain. Now we're going to get a little more microscopic. We're going to look at an individual brain cell or two. And the brain cells we pay most attention to in the brain are called neurons. There's going to be, again, a rough sketch of a neuron here. Some people look at that and they just put a little couple arms on it, but Casey, it's a self-portrait. <laughs> so what we're going to do is we are going to draw a couple other neurons in here for a reason. And that reason has to do with how it is the brain cells talk to each other. Because it turns out that brain cells, like human beings, thrive on connection. We need to connect to each other while well, our brain cells connect to each other, and they're constantly rating those connections. Our brain cells are constantly in dialogue with each other. They're constantly talking to each other, and the main point of discussion is, should I fire or not fire? That's really what they're concerned with. Do I fire or not? Now, often when we look at 
animations of the brain or sketches of the brain, we see lots of electricity shooting around, right? Well, all that electricity is just within the cell. It's called an action potential. And the cell is always trying to figure out, do I fire or not, within itself. And action potential is always the same, so it's not like it's a stronger surge or a lesser surge, but what changes is how frequently it fires. How excited is that cell? Is it like firing like huge flickering, or does it seem more occasional? And it does that based on all the information it gets from other cells. And that's why they need to connect and talk to each other, because it's always getting signals from somewhere else that encourage it to either fire or not fire. And since we said all the electricity is within the cell, that only leaves us one other mechanism for them to talk. It turns out, because they never actually quite touch, there's always this little gap right there. That little gap is called the synapse. And sometimes, ironically, we hear people say, oh, the synapses are firing. When we say they're firing, they're not shooting electricity. They're shooting chemicals. <clears throat> this is how neurons talk to each other. They talk to each other through chemical messengers. And those chemical messengers are typically called neurotransmitters. So see that little circle there? I'm going to expand that down here. Here's the close-up of that synapse. And we would see something like this, where you've got this little knob here and this little knob here. This would be the end of one cell and the beginning of another, and that gap right there is a synapse. And in that synaptic gap, we have chemicals. And this cell here stores up little packets or globules of molecules of different types of chemicals, neurotransmitters. And this one here has these little receptors that are waiting like lock and key for just the right molecule. So if the right molecule hits, it'll respond. And the response will tend to be either something that encourages it to fire or discourages it to fire. So it's always getting votes, basically, saying yes, fire, or don't fire. All those votes get tallied up right here in the nucleus of the cell, and then based on the information it gets, it'll either slow down firing or speed up firing. And it'll pay a lot of attention to which cells are giving me good information. And so based on that, it'll form stronger and stronger connections. Just like if you talk to somebody all the time and hang out with them all the time, you're probably going to form stronger and stronger connections. Your brain cells are doing the exact same thing. So when this message comes down, the action potential fires, we have electricity shooting through the cell, it's really exciting. This one will drop some of its neurotransmitters out, and then it'll suck them back up. These will, molecules will either disintegrate or they'll get sucked back in a process called reuptake, and that's gonna be important for our discussion because what drugs of abuse do, they either mimic and imitate your natural chemicals. So like the opium poppy, for reasons that are probably just a really wild coincidence, opium poppy has a molecule that we use all the time in our brain to feel okay and to regulate pain and to feel motivated to do things. So it turns out you can refine what you find in the opium poppy, you can create morphine, and then from morphine you can make heroin, which is, heroin is actually just a really efficient delivery system for uh, morphine. You can dump this massive dump into the brain, and what happens is you totally overload the system. So you're not getting like some of these chemicals Every receptor is firing like crazy and just going, we hear nothing but signal, 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 signal. And it mistakes that pleasure. Remember, pleasure encourages us to move towards survival. It looks at that pleasure and says, that's the most pleasurable thing that ever happened. Therefore, that is the most important survival thing that ever happened. Mm -hmm. And right here, not far away, in the hippocampus, we form a memory on the spot that says, whatever that was, was your best idea you've ever had. Never forget that. And it hits right here by the emotional system. And the emotional system says, whoa, that took away all the fear. I feel no pain, I feel no fear, everything is fantastic. Let's encode that in memory and next time we see some of that, let's go get it. And that becomes a very, very strong, somewhat irresistible urge to get more of whatever that is. Now, some other drugs like stimulants, like say cocaine, what they do is they actually interrupt the, uh, the reuptake process. Mm -hmm. So what happens is when you drop your, nat your chemicals naturally, the chemicals drop down and they just sit there. They don't get sucked back up. So again, they overload the receptors, same basic effect. Brain goes, wow, that was amazing, whatever that is, never forget it. And if you've ever done cocaine, you know, at least initially, you ain't feeling much fear. You're a super person, you're a superhero, you just realized all of a sudden that you're the most brilliant person that ever walked the face of the earth. 
And sometimes with cocaine, you can't stop talking about that fact. But here's the thing. Our brain doesn't want to be on overload all the time. Just like your car doesn't want to run in the red all the time. It can do it, but it's not where it's supposed to sit. So the brain cells are going to try to regulate themselves. They're going to try and take care of this problem of constantly adding outside substances. And what they do, only two things they really can do. They can prune back how much of your natural chemicals that you're manufacturing, and they can prune back the number of receptors that are there to receive those chemicals. And this now means that whenever you're not using the drug, you're feeling deprived. Yeah, you're gonna to start to feel withdrawal as soon as this happens, because now you're in a state where whenever you're not using, you're not getting enough of what you need. Right here in the survival center, this part of the brain's gonna go, wow, things are even worse. You need to take care of this right now. And then it doesn't matter how much consciously we know that we don't wanna be doing that, we will simply change our mind. And the rational part of the brain will do something it does really well, which is rationalize. We'll make up all kinds of reasons why it is that it's okay to use this one more time. And we'll promise ourselves this is the last one. And we'll mean it. And then we'll change our mind again. And then we'll change our mind again. And then we'll change our mind again. And we don't realize this part of the brain here that can't look ahead is changing our mind for us. Now, often at this point, um, it can look pretty bleak and hopeless. And it can feel really bleak and hopeless. But if it was really bleak and hopeless, I wouldn't be up here talking to you because I would just be like, nah, you're screwed. But that's not really how I go about this. We're just looking to find out and recognize this is what the problem is. Because if we can recognize that this is what's going on inside my brain, then all of a sudden it doesn't come down to, did I go to Sunday school enough? Did I listen to the wrong music? Did my parents make some mistakes? It comes down to, no, my chemical system is completely out of balance in a way that I did not choose. There was no conscious choice in here. This isn't about willpower. This is just things are chemically so far out of balance that my brain is living in a constant state of fear. And now using just feels like relief. This is how we get to that point. Someone mentioned withdrawals, but it goes beyond that. This is how we get to that point where I'm using just to get to baseline. I'm not even trying to get high anymore. I'm just trying to get okay so I can get out of bed and go to work and show up and hopefully nobody suspects I have a problem, even if I'm nodding out at work. Um, so the reality is, is we get to this state and we have to say like, now what? Well, when it gets bad enough, what often happens is remember all of these consequences over here? Well, those are pretty scary too. And often this fear generated by all this stuff happening starts to outweigh our fear of not using, because not using is scary. We have to remember this. And one of my colleagues says really well, especially in early recovery, he said, uh, somebody with an addiction who's not using is suffering. So you gotta recognize when people first get sober, they're suffering. It is difficult to walk around sober. It feels raw. It felt to me like I was walking out on the tightrope. It just felt scary. Because my brain is saying, what do you mean we're not going to go do the thing that always works? What do you mean I have to give up my best coping mechanism forever? Like, don't even talk about tomorrow. I'm just going to try and get through today without tearing my skin off. Because this is so scary and it feels so raw and it feels so deprived. So when we look back over here, remember all this stuff about like family and kids and honesty and work and money and emotions and self-esteem and values and control. Do these problems start to make more sense now? Yeah, because when it feels like life and death, everything else gets pushed to the side just for the moment. I, it's not that I'm a bad person or I don't love my family or I think that you know, my kids are unimportant or I don't care about being honest. The really sad reality is I care about all those things and I still feel compelled to try it one more time. But I intend to get back to all this stuff. I want to feel emotionally regulated. I want to be loving. I want to live by my values. So it turns out that one of the things we can do, partly, is give it time. This is one of the reasons I think that 12-step programs and other recovery programs make such a big deal out of sober time. Because like anything else in the body, if I give it enough time and enough support, it's going to try and heal. It's going to start growing receptors back. But if then I start dropping drugs in, it's going to be like, oh, you were just kidding. OK, never mind. Let me take those back. 
<laughs> right? Yeah. So we can't just say, like, I'm gonna use it every once in a while, or marijuana maintenance, or, you know, heroin was my big thing, so I'm gonna drink. Because the brain is gonna go like, okay, well, at least you give me something, but then what it usually does is say, okay, that high was cool and all, but you remember the real high? Yeah, that's why we tell people to stay sober off of everything. This is also why it makes such a big deal out of get in recovery, not just staying sober. If all I do is stay sober, I'm probably gonna pick some other addictive thing. And I've had clients come through. I had a young man that came through, not at this treatment center, but another one. And he was, he was in his last couple of days and the subject of food came up and he just mentioned that he'd been eating three breakfasts, three lunches and three dinners every night. I was like, dude, food addiction is real. And he goes, you can't be addicted to food. I'm like, yes, you can. And you are on your way, young man. And he didn't want to believe it because he was, instead of focusing on his recovery, he was trying to find some other way to jack his system up. How do I get that system revved again? I've known two different people that got heavily into skydiving in early recovery. One of them finally watched a friend die on the skydiving team they were on, and she went, whoa, I'm doing the same thing over again. I'm just getting the thrill of jumping in an airplane instead of shooting speed in my veins. She decided she needed to quit skydiving. So the point is, it's not that recovery is about cutting out every little thing that's fun. It's actually about how do I get my system back into regulation? Well, it turns out that there's actually something that can really assist with this, that can bring down fear, amp up pleasure and form really positive memories, which is some stuff we really want to do in early recovery. And that turns out to be connection. The connection is a very, very deeply soothing thing for human beings. We are built to connect. Like I said earlier, we are a tribal animal. A tribal animal wants to know it's connected. So some of the things we found here, if we go back to our sketch of the brain here, this front part right here is sort of the lowest part of the cortex that connects all this stuff down here in the limbic system and the nucleus accumbens to our conscious mind is known as the cingulate cortex, spelled with the C. And this little part of it right here in the front, thus the anterior cingulate, does a lot of mediation about who's gonna be in control. Turns out this part of the brain has a lot of control over whether your limbic system is running the show or your conscious mind is running the show. Now, for those of us, such as myself, that prefer when my conscious mind runs the show, I'm not cutting my emotions out and going Mr. Spock over here. I'm just saying, I want some balance and I'd like my conscious mind to make the final decision. How do I get this part of the brain to help me? Well, it turns out we need to energize that part of the brain. Here's what's really amazing. This part of the brain is energized by connection, by love, by empathy. And here's a big one by spirituality. Now check that out. 12-step groups are all based on this idea that you're gonna find a spiritual solution to a spiritual malady. And I always thought like, that's cool and all, but what does that have to do with science? I'm like, how does that affect my actual brain? It turns out it makes a huge difference. Because now spirituality, and I'm gonna give you Casey's definition of spirituality, because all the arrogance didn't go away just because I got sober. Spirituality on a very simple level, at least for recovery, is a sense of connection to something bigger than you. Ideally, it'll have three main qualities. This is again kind of coming from a 12-step perspective here, but this is where I see the 12-step stuff really tie in with the science stuff. Um, there are only three real 12-step suggestions about a higher power. And by the way, you don't have to use the word God if it doesn't work for you, but you can. One of them is in step three, said, made a decision to turn our will and life over to the care of a higher power. So I hear it should be caring. Next one's in the second tradition. You don't have them up here, but that's all good. Second tradition says, for our group purpose, there's only one authority, a loving higher power. Okay, so now I've got caring and loving. And then in Bill's story, I believe it is, he talks about the idea that it should feel personal to you. So there's three ideas. It should be personal to me, it should be caring, it should be loving. If I can find that quality in something bigger than me, and I don't just mean like an elephant bigger than me, but something outside of myself that feels bigger than I am, that will do for spirituality. 
When step 12, spoiler alert, tells us what's going to happen. It says there's going to be a spiritual awakening. It doesn't say a religious conversion. You can find spirituality through religion, and I think that is amazing and fantastic, and I highly encourage it. You can also find spirituality outside of religion, which I think is amazing and fantastic, and I highly encourage it. However you find that sense of connection, that seems to be very soothing for human beings. We start to feel connected, our fear goes down, our pleasure goes up, we form positive memories, and our conscious mind gets to be in control. Which means the spirituality is a pretty important piece of the program. But these other things it talks about, like being a service, turns out being a service is really neurologically beneficial. The highest neurological boost you can get around service is if you are of service to somebody else. That's the biggest one. So if I help somebody else, I feel the best. Benjamin Franklin once said, if you want somebody to like you, ask them for a favor. That was actually a neurological hack. I'm gonna say flip it though, if you wanna like somebody, do them a favor. If you have somebody you have conflict with, 12-step recovery will say, go pray for them. We're like, why would I go pray for that guy? Because I will feel better. It will actually give me a neurological boost to be of service, even if that other person doesn't know I'm being of service. In fact, in some ways, it's kind of cool to do things where you don't get caught doing something nice because then you don't have that ulterior motive and you're living purely in being of service. Now, the second best one is if somebody is of service to you. So that means it's important to be able to accept from others. First of all, we now know neurologically we're doing them a favor. We allow someone to help us, we're helping them out, and we're helping us out, which is pretty cool. But there's even a neurological boost to just watching one person help another person, even if I'm not directly involved. Which is something that I think is so cool about recovery fellowships, is they give me the opportunity to go places where I always have a chance to help somebody else, I always have a chance to be helped, and I can definitely sit around and watch one person help another person. All three of those benefits come when I show up to a meeting of whatever fellowship I choose to go to. So being of service, spirituality, these are things that encourage our sense of connection, which gives a big neurological benefit, and over time, allow us to heal this system. But what's really cool, and this is something I love about recovery, is we don't just stop when we get to baseline. Recovery doesn't like to hold still, because what we usually find is if we hold still, we actually start sliding backwards which is why when people stop going to meetings and all that kind of stuff, they start to notice fairly quickly they lose the benefits of having gone to meetings and pretty soon the old thinking is creeping back in. And one day or another, whether it's six minutes, six hours, six months, or six years, using suddenly seems like an okay idea again. I'm gonna be fine this one more time. I'm cured by now, right? That happens because we lose track of this stuff. So I have to keep feeding it, but this really cool thing happens. When I practice being of service to others, when I show up and allow other people to help me out and I'm part of that system and that flow, my life keeps getting better. And since I don't have the option to slow down or stop that process, not very effectively for any long period of time, that means that poor baby, I'm stuck in this situation where for the rest of my life, I have to keep showing up as the best possible version of myself. My life has to keep getting better. And so what I find is that if I say like this right here is where my life was, and this is where it ended up way down here when I started, you know, ended up using, I often compare these two and think like, wow, my life is so much better than it was when I was using. What I forget is this life was going downhill, so I should really be comparing where I am now to where I was ending up. But I know that this is going to keep getting better. These two things, where I was going and where I am heading, are getting farther and farther and farther apart. But there's another thing about it, and I say this a lot, especially here at Family Workshop, the work we do here is not just about us. Because this is what we're going to pass down to future generations. Mm -hmm. This is what we're going to model for them. Do we model recovery? Do we model, hey, we're always getting a little bit better? Do we model accepting help? Do we model being of service to others? All of these things are protective factors for the next generation. Because as we're going to see in this next little bit, there are some things that we can't protect the next generation from. So I say, give them every advantage we can. So this last thing we're gonna look at, remember I said we were gonna look at the biology, which we did, we looked at the medical model, or I'm sorry, the disease model. The last thing we're gonna look at is risk factors. We look at the biology, we look at the psychology, and this part, and I didn't make this up, it's called social, but it actually means all the environmental factors. So basically, 
everything outside of you, everything inside of you, and psychologically how your mind reacts. It's called the biopsychosocial model. So we'll start with the obvious one. The most obvious biological thing is genetic. It turns out our genetics play about 50% of the role in determining who's going to end up addicted and who's not. <clears throat> and think about that. That's a pretty big chunk of the pie. For something that we tend to blame on willpower and upbringing and morals and did you listen to rap music or not or whatever it is that we come up with, it turns out it's actually about 50% genetic. So again, the work we're doing is not just about us because we don't decide what genes we pass down. We're getting kind of closer on that. I don't know if this is a great idea or not, but there's not an addiction gene. There's not one gene we look at and say, that's the one. If you have this, you're hosed. If not, you're free, drink all you want. It turns out there's a lot of genetic factors that go into it. And the way genetics work, they cascade, which means that if one gene goes left or right, it's gonna affect all the other genes that are next down in the line. So there are things, genes that we know for things like depression, impulsivity, um, how we react to a certain substance, all those things are partly or sometimes entirely genetically determined. But when it comes to human behavior, we know that genetics are not the whole picture by a long shot. Because our genetics, we've come to find out in the last few decades, actually turn on and off. That is to say, genes decide, they say express, that genes are going to express or not express based on environmental factors and experiences. So what that means is if you have genetic predisposition for, say, depression, you're still going to be strongly influenced by what um, social or environmental things happen to you. And then based on that, how much social or environmental stress, how much genetic potential, because genes are not destiny, right? They're potential, they are tendency, but they're not what you're stuck with. So instead, we'll look and say, these things happen, my genes react this way, they will both influence how I think, and if enough of those factors pile up, then I become very vulnerable to addiction. And it's funny, when I first heard this bit, you know, 50% genetic, and while this is not a perfect correlation, it does correlate with the statistic you'll hear that uh, a child of somebody who has an addiction has about a 50-50 chance of developing an addiction themselves, which is kind of scary. Um, when I first heard that, I was like 19 years old, and I just read it in some book, and I immediately called my brother. I said, Matt, you've got to be careful, man. You're out there in college, you're drinking, dad was an alcoholic, you might become an alcoholic. He's fine. I go to AA meetings. Um, <laughs> turns out, I was way off base. And never considered that I might have an addiction. I was just all worried about him, which is kind of sweet, but there you go. So we know genetics are a big piece of the puzzle. Environmentally, what do you think are some of the risk factors that we might run into? Trauma. I like to say that trauma is in the eye of the beholder. That means that it really matters if it feels traumatic, not if it looks traumatic from the outside. So sometimes there are things that we think would be highly traumatic and we see people just sort of sail through them. And sometimes there are things where it doesn't seem like a big deal to anyone else. In fact, this often happens with smaller children. Nobody has any idea that trauma just happened. So a really simple way to look at trauma is to say it's an experience. So again, it's basically it's a stressor. It's an invitation to feel less safe in the world. And depending on my psychology up to that point and my genetics, because that's all going to affect things, I may decide that I'm significantly less safe in the world and then I'm going to start acting that way from now on. So that means if I go through something that feels traumatic, I might decide from that then on I need to like pay super close attention to everything in the environment. I have to look out for if any of those threats are going to happen again. I have to look out and see you know, what's going to happen. So I might start having flashbacks, might have nightmares, might be really jumpy might develop all kinds of physical symptoms. It is amazing how many physical symptoms go with trauma that nobody thinks to stop and check on. Besser van der Kolk wrote a great book called The Body Keeps the Score. And if you ever deal with trauma, it's well worth reading. It's sort of written more for like therapists, but it's very readable and it's got a ton of good information. Now, as one of my trainers said, sometimes you have to go kind of shields up because he speaks very openly about highly traumatic and horrifying things that happen to human beings. But his main point is how our body reacts. Because we will take on all kinds of ailments 
and see doctor after doctor after doctor and nobody's able to figure what's going on and maybe nobody ever stops to say, hey, what were things like for you when you were a kid? Because we associate childhood trauma with the most profound effect, although it can certainly happen with, uh, with adults. So trauma, peers, stressors, I'll put a few other up here just for time, I'll say media. And then under psychological things, so like trouble with self-esteem, any kind of psychiatric disorder correlates very highly with substance use. And by the way, it's not always uh, super simple to figure out which one actually came first. It's a very chicken and egg question. Like we might think, oh, this person is drinking because they're depressed, but it turns out that drinking actually causes depression as well. So it's hard to tell exactly which one came first. So psychiatric uh, conditions, uh, self-esteem problems, any kind of connection problem. Remember how vital connection feels. Well, if we grow up feeling disconnected, we are way more vulnerable to addiction. Mm. And here's the thing, they all feed each other kind of makes this big triangle. So my genetics may make me more vulnerable to depression. And if I'm depressed, I'm gonna have different experiences and interactions with my peers and things on the outside, which will then reinforce that genetic message, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's how we get on this downward spiral. And sometimes the downward spiral starts really young and nobody has any idea it's happening. Um, so for all the parents who are like, oh no, it was me, I gave them the genetics. You didn't pick the genetics, so we'll start with that. Nobody does. Second of all, you don't pick their environment. I learned that really early on in parenting my daughter, that we are not controlling her environment. She's going out there in the world, and her impression psychologically of what's happening is also well beyond my control. It's also beyond her control. What this really means to me when I look at all these different factors that go in, and we could spend all day writing stuff down under environmental factors that might make you more vulnerable. One takeaway is kind of chaos theory. There are way too many factors to go in to look at one thing and say, that's the reason this person has an addiction. It's never that simple. There's so many different things that go into it. It also really, really reinforces that nobody chooses to have an addiction. In fact, as we saw in the last section, we don't always know why we make any choice. It's just reality. But another thing that I look at, and I look at that and say, okay, how do I get on the upward spiral? I'm tired of the downward spiral. How do I make this into an upward spiral? I can't go and change the genetics, right? But we just found out I can have some influence on which genes express and which ones don't. So I might look at things in my environment. Now again, I'm not gonna stay sober just by controlling the environment. In fact, I'll probably drive myself crazy trying to control the environment. But I can look and say, how am I reacting to the environment? Is there unresolved trauma? Is there stuff I know I need to be dealing with that I'm not talking about? Let's start talking about it. Peers, who am I hanging out with? What kind of stressors around me? Are some of those manageable? If they are, let me reduce them. If not, let me learn how to deal with them better. Media messages, that's kind of what it is. Availability, yeah, it might depend on who I'm hanging out with. I threw a party a couple years ago um, when I was living in New Mexico with my wife, and we like to throw parties a lot of the time. And I looked around the party at one point, and I recognized that it was the weirdest thing. I just looked around the room, and I kind of went, huh. I was just kind of going around counting and looking, and I realized that everybody in our house was in recovery. Now, I didn't say we're gonna throw a party where only people in recovery are gonna show up. Those were just the people I had the most in common with. Well, I'm hanging out with people in recovery, nobody's offering me drugs, it's the coolest thing. Like, it doesn't come up. Nobody's like, hey man, do you like to get high? They already know I like to get high. They like to get high too, but we're not doing that anymore. And I work on the psychological stuff. I mean, you can do it the way you want to do it, but man, when I got in recovery, first three years I was in therapy every week, out of pocket, insurance was not touching, I'm like, my checkbook's touching it, because you know what? I need to work on all that stuff that I've been avoiding all this time. Because when I look up on this list, you can, maybe you've noticed it already, all of these things come into play probably the most strongly when we hit puberty. And most people start using it at some point in puberty. Whatever trauma we've been through, even if we seemed like just fine as little kids, when we hit puberty, our brain, um, well, the way we think shifts and trauma may resurface and may come out in some really funky ways. Our peers suddenly become the most important people in our lives. We react to stressors differently. We react to media messages differently and all of a sudden, everything's available that wasn't available before. Our psychological or psychiatric factors are gonna suddenly kick into high gear. And our genetics are gonna be expressing in new ways. There is no way to perfectly 
protect somebody from this. In fact, as teenagers, we're already built to take higher, to take greater risks for lesser rewards. In other words, things sound like more fun. We talked about teenagers being impulsive. It's not as simple as that. I don't know about y'all, I planned a lot of my mischief. It wasn't just impulse, it was like, oh man, Friday night we're sneaking out, we're gonna go do the thing. But I was willing to take big risks. So what's really cool though, is I can look at this and say, how do I get on the upward spiral? And that's really by saying, okay, I'm gonna finally look at all that psychological or psychiatric stuff I didn't wanna deal with before. It's time to deal with it. I'm gonna look at my environment, past and present and say, what do I need to heal from? What do I need to change? And through those things, now I know, I can influence my genetics. I can influence how these things express. And a lot of it comes down to, again, taking good care of myself, being good to other people. Have to put my oxygen awesome mask on first so I can't go save the world until I'm in better shape but I can get in better shape so I can help other people. And that's kind of a big deal. If I'm willing to do that, then it reminds me, I'm gonna close with this uh, thing from the comedian Russell Brand. Talks about addiction a lot, right? If you've ever checked out his stuff, he's a great guy. Uh, so he seems from over here. But he said at one point that there's no condition that leaves people uglier than addiction. And he didn't mean physically, because leprosy is pretty bad that way. But he was saying like, just personality wise, we've become our worst self but I see the opposite happening in recovery. And I don't know if he talks about this elsewhere, but he didn't say it at that same time. So I was thinking, man, if I ever got to meet Russell Brand, or hey Russell, if you listen to this podcast. Um, <laughs> what I want to say is there's nothing that leaves you looking better than recovery. And I see that not just for the person with the addiction, but for family members too. We have the opportunity to start working to become our best selves. And if I'm faced with that choice every day, either I'm sliding back into my worst self, or I get to make a conscious choice of heading into my best self, I know which choice I'm gonna make. Thanks for being with us for another episode of Addiction and the Family. In today's episode, we learned a lot about addiction and the brain. If you find this subject as important and as interesting as we do, consider checking out drugabuse.gov and other websites run by the U.S. government that give information for free about drug addiction and what's happening in the brain. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe. It means a lot to us. If you know anyone else who could use what we have to offer, please tell them about addiction to the family. If you have comments about this podcast, have a question you'd like to answer it on the show, or want to contribute your voice, or just want to say hi, you can write to us at addictionofthefamily at gmail.com. We're also happy to be your friend on Facebook, and we can be found tweeting on Twitter. Addiction in the Family is produced, written, and engineered by Kira and Casey Ariaga, with music by Casey.